You're listening to the Modern Web Podcast. For more podcasts, videos, and events, find us online at modern-web.org or follow us on Twitter at modern.web. That's M-O-D-E-R-N-D-O-T-W-E-B. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Modern Web Podcast. I am your host, Lindsay Wardell. I am a software engineer at This.Labs. Today, we are excited to talk with Stephanie Eccles. Welcome to the show, Stephanie. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by Dexecure, a company that optimizes websites with a single line code, thereby giving you pre- back precious time to focus on what you love doing, building new and exciting websites. Be it images, JavaScript, CSS, or HTML fonts, or even third-party assets, Dexecure can optimize them all and always serve the best version of your website to your audiences. Visit https colon slash slash dexsecure.com slash modern web podcast and get the first month free when you sign up for any basic or pro plan or try out free account uh, as well. So Stephanie, welcome to the show. Uh, Would you mind introducing yourself for those who aren't aware of you at this point? Yeah. So um, my name is Stephanie Eccles. I am a software engineer at Microsoft focused on front-end development. And I've been a professional web developer for officially 14 years (laughs) um, as the last month. And I am also the author of ModernCSS.dev, the creator of StyleStage.dev, and the unofficial ambassador self-titled for (laughs) Levendy. And I have resources at Levendy.rocks for that. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, you you definitely get around and do a lot in the uh, development ecosystem. That's awesome. Uh, Would you mind talking a bit about what got you into programming in the first place? Yeah. So as I said, I've been around a while. So uh, that puts my initial context of web development at um, sort of a passing interest of I I learned about Flash and had the opportunity to do a kids, a teenage um, camp and learned about Flash animation. And so that kind of led to me wondering how do you actually put this online? Because I knew it had to be ran in the browser, um, if not locally. So that snowballed. Um, Definitely did my time of dabbling with MySpace profile (laughs) customization and all that. Always the Um, best. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, And, you know, table layout, frame sets. I just was reminiscing about that a little a few weeks ago. Uh, Gifts of words on fire. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I... I ended up majoring in advertising, um, but that was just because I knew I wasn't going to cut it as just an artist. (laughs) So I still got to be creative, but I spent a huge amount of my time just kind of self-learning various things about development. Uh, That led to WordPress. I spent 10 years as a WordPress developer. Um, I did work in advertising agencies and marketing agencies. and a couple of years in product development and design systems development. And um, so, yeah, that's the very short version of how I got here. <laughs> nice. And then about a year ago, um, slightly before we had any of us had knowledge of coronavirus or anything, um, I had started to wonder how I could kind of reenter, get back into networking and, and things. Um, I was offline, if you will, for a while, uh, being a new mom. And so um, those things kind of led to a few different opportunities, um, including modern CSS. So that was my official gateway into uh, <laughs> the rest of the things that followed. It's awesome. And 
Modern CSS is an excellent resource for anyone who hasn't been there before. Uh, definitely recommend checking it out after this podcast. Uh, you should finish watching us first. Uh, but Stephanie, what brought you into uh, CSS as as the focus there? That what what drove you to create modern CSS? Yeah. So throughout my other career experiences, um, as a marketing developer, we were creating very highly customized sites. Like we did the full UX process. You know, we weren't just picking WordPress themes and customizing. We were building from scratch. So a lot of unique things that we developed from that. We were also a very small team. Um, and to do a lot of that, we used Bootstrap. And, you know, that was great. That got us through a lot, obviously, hugely um, enabled us to be more efficient in what we were building. Um, but I was starting to get kind of frustrated with with having the limitations of a pre-built framework. Um, and But it wasn't until I... Um, moved into a product team and started working as a design systems lead that, um, and kind of seeing more broadly interacting with other developers and seeing their pain points across my uh, enterprise company at that time. Um, understanding how much of a gap there was um, between folks who weren't as interested in front end and myself. And so, and specifically, as I said, I was kind of reentering trying to get back onto um, what was going on in web development after kind of a hiatus and noticed that CSS was definitely still a hot button topic. Um, I don't think we'll ever see that go away, unfortunately. But specifically, what I kind of identified from my experiences and the chatter around it was maybe a lack of realizing what modern CSS is capable of. Um, so I was thinking back on my own experiences, like, you know, I have some struggles, but I know that they probably have commonalities with other folks and specific struggles. And so, you know, I was like, well, what was something that bothered me for years? And that was the first article that I have, keeping the footer at the bottom, right? But now, you know, that was a good one to get out the gate. I did a pros and cons um, pitting Flexbox first grid. And so the second one, I did something similar because that went over well. Um, and it made sense in that context to do it that way. Um, and then, you know, just kind of thinking, what else have I struggled with and how can modern CSS do this more efficiently, more cleanly, um, more enjoyably? <laughs> so, um, yeah, the modern CSS, I do consider it a series. Um, what ties them together is that I do write it from the perspective of perhaps you're not aware of what tools are available now. Um, I know one thing that held me back and, and I'm sure most folks can identify is browser support for these things. So I try to do things that have broad support. Um, I'll highlight if there's a particular aspect that doesn't, but my goal is to, you know, I'll show you how to do something specific because they are tutorials, but also hopefully give you ideas to carry with you um, to solve future solutions that just have some commonalities with those. Nice. I, I like having that I, idea that it's a series and that it continues to to kind of build as you're going. Yeah. Um, I, I found it interesting when you're talking about the modern modern tooling in CSS that some people might not be aware of. So, for example, when I started with CSS, uh, I, I started in like middle school and high school, and that was when divs and spans were the brand new hotness. So I I have a certain 
view of CSS, a certain way that I apply it. And sometimes I forget that there's some of the modern pieces that exist, like aspect ratio, or recently I saw the, the new proposal for a, a colon has to, to look up and down the tree. Uh, what are some of the modern CSS uh, either properties or keys or what, what are things that developers today should be aware of so that they can better use CSS in their applications? Yeah. So I think the understanding when it's appropriate to use um, flex versus grid, because I know for myself, um, you know, I, I mentioned I, I use Bootstrap, right? And I've used it long enough to use it from floats to flex, you know, and it kind of felt like just as we were getting grips on flex, you know, it was like, oh, here's grid. But then you know, I personally avoided it because of lack of browser support in terms of what I was having to build um, for my actual job. <laughs> and so, um, but now, you know, we're in a safe spot, you know, where you can use either one depending on your context. So I would say learning more about grid and grid is definitely something just didn't intend to focus on it quite so much, but it, it tends to fit a lot of the practical use cases that I encounter. And so I imagine other folks encounter them as well um, for general page layout, um, but also for micro context. Like I use it throughout my forms input series as well. So, you know, um, essentially getting up to speed on what, it, what, what are the layout methods available and when to apply them. Um, but yeah, then there's some awesome new, um, did an article for Smashing Magazine and also a series on modern CSS about um, CSS selectors. So has is not quite, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be spec'd and sure. that's exciting <laughs> because that was a change from just a week ago. Yeah. Um, and so that's awesome. Um, that'll be one to keep an eye out, but other ones that we have right now, they're also very cool, um, and impactful for future, uh, how we write CSS. One that comes to mind is, is, so is, is going to allow you to within parentheses, um, supply a list of selectors rather than list them on their own lines. And so um, it's compacting it, yes. But if you think about scenarios where you've had to write more complex selectors, um, if you do think of something like a WordPress context or some sort of other legacy system context where you're not allowed to touch the underlying DOM structure and you're trying to get at this one thing <laughs> that you need to yep. adjust um, or several things, um, you know, is this going to be super powerful? Um, the other, you know, really practical place, I'm excited to use it, that's um, just slightly more efficient, is setting things like font weights and, or font families for heading styles, for example. So I can just compactly list those inside of is rather than individually. And it's just a nice little upgrade. Um, and that has pretty awesome support. Um, overall, especially if you're doing it for something like headlines where, okay, if it doesn't apply, you know, you're not offering a, you're offering a slightly less ideal experience, but not a broken experience, right? So the idea of progressive enhancement coming in. Right, right. So is is pretty cool. Um, there's a similar one called where the difference being that is if you drop something with an ID in it, for example, and the entire selector has the specificity of the ID. Um, conversely, where is always zero specificity, which is pretty interesting. So um, 
for a design system world, um, where will be interesting, it's something we could use to set reasonable defaults, but not have as much issue for downstream developers to override those as needed. You know, so you wouldn't have to get so specific to override something, even if the where selector is actually kind of a complex selector for whatever reason. <laughs> so yeah, good enhancements there um, that are ones you can use today. Um, the other one on the horizon that's getting close is container queries. So definitely been experimenting I with those as well. <laughs> haven't explored container queries yet. What are those? Yeah, so I also had just this week, um, or last week, wrote about those on Smashing Magazine. So if you're interested in a really deep dive, you can check that out. Um, but that's going to allow us to write um, a query similar to a media query, like similarly uh, syntax for that. So, but instead of at media, it's at container. And you define a parent element, a containing element. And then based on the computed, right now it's width. There may be a point in the future where it's height but right now width is the main one, um, where you watch that width with the container query, and then you can change any properties, but not just on the, you actually don't change them on the container, which is a little confusing. You're changing them on the container's descendants, but you can, you can you know, select down any of the descendants. So it's not just the immediate descendant, it's anything within the container. So um, yeah, gonna be super awesome for developing a component that doesn't have to care about its context, but just itself and can be dropped in, you know, in any number of, of layouts and kind of automatically reconfigure itself. So that sounds so useful. Yeah. <laughs> really cool. Um, yeah, a super fun one to experiment with. That is available for experimentation um, in Chrome Canary currently. So you have to explicitly turn that on under the feature flags in Chrome. And then there's um, Miriam Suzanne is the proposal author and, and spec author for that. And she has a collection of code pins that you can check out when you have that enabled to see what folks are already starting to come up with. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, one of the, the things I really enjoy about the direction CSS is going is it takes all of the stuff that you've had to do in JavaScript or had to do with some clunky third party, not quite CSS way and just puts it in the language, puts it in the, the system itself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you think uh, the, the, the CSS working group, you know, of course, is watching other trends and whatever else is happening in the, in the web, and they're absolutely making a big effort to um, bring what they can into the language. There's been a huge boost in, you know, all, like I said, the new selectors and actually getting them implemented in the browser um, container queries. There's a couple other ones that are coming up that, to your point, um, will alleviate some of the things that are kind of being handled and offloaded to frameworks right now and bring them natively into the language. So very cool stuff. Nice. One of the other projects that you have going is uh, small CSS, <laughs> yeah. which Seems really cool. Um, it doesn't seem like it's quite a framework. It's more more just suggestions on how you can do certain things. Is that right? Yeah, that is correct. Yeah. Would you yeah, mind talking so a bit about where that came from? Yeah, definitely. So small CSS is uh, essentially a companion to modern CSS.dev, where um, 
Modern CSS is full tutorials. Um, and small CSS is kind of pulled out snippets with um, a little bit of explanation, just enough to point out the um, the meaning of the bits in the, in the snippet. So it kicks off with my two favorite ways to do layout these days um, between grid and flexbox. And then of course I had to include centering because what's a modern CSS snippet repository without centering? How do I center um, a div? <laughs> Spoiler alert, it's display grid place content center. Um, <laughs> but anyway, and then just a few other layout arrangements that are, so it's small, S-M-O-L, if you're looking for it, uh, small CSS.dev. <laughs> but anyway, they are compact snippets and it's not about being clever, it's about showing the power truly of what modern CSS gives us. Um, so all, what you'll also see sprinkled throughout is use of CSS functions that again, have much better support now. Um, and it's one area that was a little bit of what drove it um, to create this resource is I don't see CSS functions talked about very much, um, but they again, offer a very elegant solution for some things that you might be offloading to a framework that are more overhead than maybe you need for your actual circumstance. But nothing against frameworks by the way, but I think it's useful to know what the, the language offers. So. Mm -hmm. It's the same kind of discussion we have with vanilla JavaScript, you know, the yeah. plain JavaScript versus Vue or React or something like that, for where sure. the, the framework is powerful and it does a lot of things for you, but it's always good to know what JavaScript itself can do. Yep. So you know when to use the framework. Exactly. Yeah. So one of the, one of the um, items in small CSS is actually a starting point for, um, I was struggled with what to call it, but I called it document styles, but it's 55 lines of CSS to give you just like a very clean starting point. So we we're talking about is, for example, I, I use that in there um, to compact things a bit, um, you know, and just, again, just really trying to point out like, here's, here's what we, we have offered to us now that if you're doing a, a blog or, you know, something that's more content focused and you don't have like wild, layout or functionality requirements, um, you know, check out, check out what you can get just from the language and, and a, just a handful of properties. So it's just, I think it's fun. <laughs> nice. You mentioned CSS functions, um, which briefly almost tips into the is CSS a programming language type of yep. discussion, but we don't, we don't need to go there. <laughs> um, but what are some of the New, what are some of the CSS functions that you really like using or you you turn to on a regular basis? I saw while looking through small CSS, you talked about clamp, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, what yeah, are what are some of the other things? Yeah, and clamp kind of gets the most attention because um, it's used in the um, fluid typography um, solution, which is great. Um, um, a discovery as I was making small CSS and, and for one of my own projects was that, you know, another practical place to use it is to manage spacing. So clamp, just briefly, um, it takes three values. You can think of them as a minimum allowed value, a preferred value, and a max value. Um, and so often, like for responsive typography or fluid typography, that middle value is based on like viewport width. So that way is your resize up and down. Um, the font size resizes within your min and max range. Um, I discovered you can also use it for padding. 
as an example, because your padding percentage is going to be based on element width. So in that way, you sort of have an interesting container um, uh, container responsive padding, which is pretty cool. Um, and But beyond clamp, there's also min by itself and also max by itself. And you can actually enter more than two values for these. And as your context changes, as the computed value of those things changes. So for example, if you had a rim value, a percentage value, and a viewport width value, as each of those are changed throughout different contexts, the minimum would be chosen, or conversely, the maximum computed value would be chosen. Um, and I find myself using these quite a bit. Um, one of my other current favorite layout tricks is um, using the minimum function and using that to set a a container or a wrapper or what have you, you know, layout max width class essentially. So instead of doing a width and a max width, we can use just width and then the minimum function. And for example, set like a, a pixel value if you prefer, like a 960 or whatever value you prefer as your max, but also like a view width value. So say you do 960 and then your second value is 90 view widths. So it'll choose the minimum of those two values. So on a wide viewport, you get the 960. On a small viewport, you get the 990 view width. So that way you're not triggering overflow, but you still have some containment. So I think that's really cool. I think that's, that's awesome. <laughs> like an example of it being so powerful. Um, it's not, again, it's not trying to be clever. It's just using the language to its full extent. So. Mm -hmm. And simplifying what the developer needs to remember because. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, especially thinking of things like, um, transitions and animations, having to deal with width and max width and min width and stuff, that, yeah. that can be a little challenging. For sure. I think again, back to my bootstrap days of dropping in so many classes to get my columns to respond differently across viewports. Um, I haven't specifically looked at like, what would that look like for changing those over to functions, but even just the container, you know, that max container itself, um, super simplifies that. Yeah, well, that's great. Uh, you also, at this point, I feel like we're almost going down the list of things you do. You do so much it's, and it's all great. You also do a podcast uh, that I believe is called the Word Wrap Podcast. Is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> Word Wrap. Yep. That was a, uh, it took us forever to name it, but now we're having too much fun with the wrap um, puns, both as a gift and also as, you know, wrapping. <laughs> um but yeah, uh, my co-host is Claire Lipsky, and um, we talk about uh, a variety of things, kind of, you know, stuff that pertains to developer life um, a little bit. So um, we have one that's not quite out yet, um, or just, I guess, our most recent one that's out, for example, has to do with project life cycles and, and finding yourself as a um in that process and just our experiences there. So we used to work together. We now have different experiences. Um, and so across quite a few industries and team sizes and all sorts of things. So um, we just kind of discuss these topics. We try to keep them pretty short. Um, we also did a couple focused episodes on accessibility. It's something we're both very passionate about sharing. Um, so that was a fun series. We had a little mini series uh, the first one was common accessibility fa failures, and the second was WCAG success criteria you might not be meeting. Um, and so some of the like lesser known WCAG things that, again, we've encountered um, 
having to work within our own work, but maybe you don't see talked about as frequently as things like color contrast. <laughs> so just just uh, kind of getting to explore some of those things. We've talked about web components. Um, of course, we talked about CSS a little bit, <laughs> just one episode so far. <laughs> Um, and also about 11D. So yeah, just kind of hitting these topics that um, kind of have some, you know, relevance to what folks seem to be interested in right now. Um, but just kind of bringing, just kind of talking about our own experiences. We just recorded our first guest. So look for that in a couple of weeks too. And we're excited to invite more folks to join us as well. Nice. I'll definitely be checking out that episode. Uh, also need to go back and listen to the accessibility ones. That's, yeah. I mean, that I, I feel like accessibility is one of those things that is everyone knows that you need to do it. And it, it's almost like unit tests where it, it, it's important and it falls to the side sometimes. Uh, and I, I regularly see on Twitter people talking about buttons need to be buttons, and links need to be links. And I don't think we think about the, the CSS aspect of accessibility nearly as much as we should. We're we're so focused on the the HTML and JavaScript side. Uh, what are what are some of the the easy to easy to miss pitfalls of CSS with accessibility? Yeah, so um, so I happen to have an article on that too on modern CSS because <laughs> it, it it is an important topic and it's one I realized uh, that I hadn't covered. Um, I, I talk about accessibility throughout my various things, but I did want to have a dedicated one. So uh, for sure, the first one that comes to mind and the first one I focused on there too is um, focus visibility. So, um, and this is one you might see talked about uh, alongside color contrast um, sometimes where you shouldn't just outright drop outlines, for example, you need to provide a complementary style for, for users on focus of interactive elements being links, buttons, form elements as the primary ones. Um, and so, but another kind of key thing there that isn't in all materials that you might encounter is that even if you provide an alternative style, for example, using box shadow um, in order to get rounded corners, I definitely have used that a ton, um, you should still provide an outline because of uh, for users on Windows machines, there's a mode called Windows High Contrast mode, and box shadow is one of the styles that gets dropped in that mode. So you should either leave a transparent outline or a transparent border style. Outline would be preferred because you may already have a border style. So little things like that that just, you know, um, you may not, you just may not know are required. And it's not anything to do with, you know, browser fallbacks. Um, but just being aware of these properties and how to use them in conjunction for the best chance in an accessible experience. So that's definitely one I probably talk about a lot. Um, we also have things like considering focus order. I think I think when I, it, a lot of things boil down to not being aware of um, ensuring keyboard accessibility, which does often require some JavaScript assistance if you're doing like modals. Um, so like enabling the escape key, but there's things to do for CSS too. Like you can use grid and flex to change the visual order versus the source order. And that affects keyboard users if, if that involves uh, changing interactive elements. Um, so just, yeah, those are, those are probably my top two <laughs> that get missed. Um, another one that I've started talking more about um, 
is one that uh, is related to reflow, is what the WCAG guideline calls it. So this is when, is this triggered when a user boosts up their Zoom level over 200%, um, up to 400% is what the guideline goes to. And when that happens, usually, um, if your design is responsive, it usually triggers a responsive design. However, you have a different aspect ratio that you're working with for a desktop user because we are talking about a desktop context. In addition, versus a mobile device, they're probably not on a touch device. This is probably a true desktop device that they're triggering this on. So if you've made methods that rely on or that assume touch, but it's actually being viewed on a desktop device, you know, you may be degrading somebody's experience. Um, there's a snippet on small CSS that actually shows how to detect or attempt to detect if there's a touch device or a hover capable device. So you can use some of these things in CSS to um, attempt to still provide the appropriate experience depending on the user's device capabilities. And there's other device capabilities things too. And I haven't even like gotten into that in my work too much, but things like, um, you know, checking for prefers reduced motion. I think I talked about that a little bit. Um, so not providing a parallel or parallax experience, for example, <laughs> for users that are motion sensitive. Um, and there's a, there's a ton of articles about that and way more about motion guidelines if you're interested. And definitely an area where CSS is 100%, you know, the tool being used um, for those things, maybe augmented with JavaScript. But CSS, at the end of the day, of course, that's has directly to do with the design layer. So, you know, understanding how to apply those or how to um, essentially provide an off switch uh, for users that um, would prefer or for medical reasons can't have any motion, you know, that causes right. maybe seizures or other side effects. So yeah, those are the ones that come to mind. Yeah, it's it's interesting because most most developers don't have the uh, the accessibility blockers to use certain features or or need to go into high contrast mode or reduced motion mm -hmm. mode unless they're needing to test for those kinds of features. And they might not yeah. even be aware that that's that's a thing that they need to be testing for. For sure. Uh, I, I know I was working on a project once where the the text was gray and the background was gray. They, they were different grays, but, and I wear glasses and sometimes the, the text is hard to read. And I, I had to report that to them. It's like, this is this is a thing we need to take care of if we're gonna keep working on this. Uh, yeah. It's just those, those little things that we don't always think about because we don't experience them ourselves. For sure. And I, I just, a quick point there. I think that's great that you mentioned it. And I think that's a huge part of how we can all ensure accessible experiences is if you notice something, Hopefully you're able to raise that point with somebody in the, your organization, you know, if it's directly something you're working on um, to try to resolve that. Yeah, we can we can always be shooting for the the trendy new style for for building a website, but at the end of the day, our fonts need to be readable or <laughs> not gonna do any good. Yep. Excellent. Um one one other piece that you are doing, and we want to, I want to focus on this one a little more as well, uh, is you're doing a modern CSS workshop. Is that correct? Yes. Jim. Yep. That's going to be through um, in partnership with Smashing Conferences. So Smashing Magazine has a conference arm as well. 
And so that'll be coming up in July. That is called uh, Level Up with Modern CSS. And it'll take some of the ideas that you can kind of discover through my Modern CSS articles and Small CSS, but bring it all together, talk about it in terms of how it really comes together for a full project, um, kind of as a take-home artifact of that. We'll be building a framework, but we'll be really focusing on what does Modern CSS offer as a language, and then um, to help learn that, we'll be making some practical components that you'll be able to, again, kind of have as your takeaway from that. So it's a total of five days, but it's spread over two and a half weeks, and it's two and a half hour sessions at a time. So um, it's at a time, for me, it hits at noon. Um, you can see uh, uh, from the workshop page kind of where it hits throughout the world. Um, but it'll be live workshop, but they'll all be recorded. So if you sign up and it doesn't hit you at a good time, you'd be able to um, catch the replays. Nice. That, that sounds like a really, really fun workshop to go to. Even if you already have some concept of CSS, that sounds like a great way to, to get more experience, more understanding of how it works at a, at a deeper level. Yeah, I'm hoping so. <laughs> yeah, it. Uh, um, I'm excited for it. We'll talk about accessibility when it when it impacts too. So some of the things I briefly mentioned, we'll we'll definitely uh, look at including in the projects. Um, and you'll also learn a little bit about Eleven D as a build tool. We're going to use that instead of Gulp. So another kind of modern upgrade, um, just to have exposure to. Um, we'll also be using SAS, which um, I sometimes get questions on if SAS is still you know, do we need it since the modern CSS can do so much for us? And um, I still enjoy it as an organizational tool. So um, we'll, we'll be using it. You don't need prior knowledge of any of those things I just said. Um, it would be great to have a baseline understanding of CSS and HTML for sure. But otherwise, um, yeah, it's, it's going to, I already know there's quite a few skill levels that are planning to attend. Awesome. Well, cool. I, hope that that goes as well as it sounds it will <laughs> and uh we'll make sure to to get the word out about it for anyone who wants to sign up uh when do when do signups end um i think they'll end just a couple weeks before or if we hit kind of uh a max number so <laughs> okay yeah there are That's currently fair. um four scholarships available for underrepresented folks in tech and um so those will be wrapping up a little bit sooner so that we can um, alert the the winners of those. So that's available on the workshop page. There's a form part way down. You can apply for that scholarship. Cool. Thank you. Um, what is, as you're preparing for this workshop, as well as just the fact that you work on modern CSS and write all of these articles, what is the hardest part that you find uh, for teaching modern CSS or CSS in general to uh, to developers? Excellent question. Um, I attempt to, I, th I think it's making sure to include background info that maybe you um, feels commonplace to yourself, you know, if you're a more experienced dev, but making to, sure to include that um, as part of your information, um, I think is really helpful so that somebody can enter into your content and um, 
follow along. You know, that's the goal is, you know, to have anybody be able to follow along and, and reasonably understand what you're, you're doing. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do any uh, advanced topics. Of course, that's really needed too. Um, for myself and my materials, I, I try to speak to that kind of advanced beginner to intermediate. Um, but then for sure, for modern CSS, I expect there to be a lot of quote unquote senior developers that are hitting this um, because that's kind of my, you know, for sure my audience as well to let them know what they can do, right? So I'm, I anticipate that a lot of skill levels are hitting my materials, at least on modernCSS.dev. Um, and for me, it's, it's more so finding time for, <laughs> to do all the ideas that come to mind. I, uh, I use Notion loosely too. Uh, they have kind of the Kanban feature and I was like, yeah, this is great. And then I look at it like every three weeks and decide if I actually <laughs> did the things I wanted to do. <laughs> um, yeah. Time is my biggest enemy outside of a full-time job slash mom life. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that the other thing that kind of evolved for myself was the platform or the tools that I use to do these things. And, and I use the dev or I began writing on dev too. So the dev community, and that was, I'd highly recommend that as a place to get started if you're interested in writing or starting to put out materials. Cause there's, it's such a good supportive community and you get feedback, you know, of some kind, even if it's just the emoji reactions, which is still encouraging, you know, if you're trying to decide if this is right for you. Um, I've done video. I'm an Aikahead instructor, so I've done video format as well. Um, and a little bit of YouTube. I'm not like, I take the egghead idea with me into YouTube, which means um, pretty short videos, pretty focused videos, not these kind of long, long tutorials or anything. Um, so I, I think for me, it's, yeah, scoping down my ideas and, and deciding which ones are worth focusing on <laughs> more than actually writing them. And, um, but the platform matters too. I, I initially used dev as a headless CMS essentially into an 11D site. And I recently kind of refactored that to bring it local just because of, um, wanting to make tutorials that were a little more complex than, uh, I wanted to show them more step-by-step -step and it sounded very time consuming to do that as like a series of code pins instead. So, um, yeah, I think just being open to evolving the platform and that's, what's great about, I think that's why I stay in development too, is, you know, being able to make switches like that and, you know, choose your tool set and your platform and whatever else to make things work for you. Yeah. I feel like that's the best part of being a content creator in the dev <laughs> ecosystem is we can, we get to build the tools we create on too. Yeah. <laughs> cool. For sure. uh, since you brought up 11D, that was the next topic I wanted to talk about. Uh, we are getting towards the end, but uh, you mentioned you work on 11D rocks. I've not worked with 11D itself. I've heard of it. I've seen sites that use it. Um, for somebody like me, could you explain what 11D is and how it rocks? Absolutely. <laughs> So 11D is a static site generator. Um, it's going to somewhat compare to Jekyll um, specifically. Um, I haven't worked with Jekyll, but that is what <laughs> I know that it was created from is kind of an evolution from Jekyll. Um, 
I do have previous experience with Gatsby. So versus something like Gatsby, where, you know, you're writing in React, like it essentially requires JavaScript and it's going to load cl JavaScript client side. Um, 11D is purely static. There's no client side run of JavaScript. Um, on its most essential level, it can be kind of an upgrade from tools like Gulp because it's going to give you just, it comes with browser sync. So if you start building with just HTML and CSS, you can use it simply to just launch your local server. And if that's all you use it for, awesome. Um, I started using it because I, from working with Gatsby, I liked being able to write Markdown. Um, I didn't like that it required the JavaScript bundle because I wasn't using it. Um, and so with 11D, there's actually 10 supported templating languages, um, which HTML counts as a templating language in this context. I usually end up using HTML, Markdown, and then also Nunjex as my kind of third flavor. Um, I use Nunjex. There's also, it also supports Liquid, Handlebars, some other ones. It does support actual JavaScript templating as well. What's interesting about that though, is that it all gets processed at build time to produce, again, truly static style files. <laughs> used to styles, static uh, <laughs> files. Yeah, so you, um, you know, if you use it with a continuous build um, hosting, something like Netlify or what have you, um, you know, you can have it build there. They're making a lot of other improvements to it um, that are gonna bring it um, so the creator, Zach Leatherman, actually works for Netlify. So he's, he's doing a oh. lot of stuff to make it work really nicely with serverless functions and on-demand building and things like that. So stuff that you might have previously used something like Gatsby for, um, you might be able to get actually with some of these tooling upgrades. But yeah, so you can essentially like that. It For me, it works because it has very few opinions on the structure. So if you like more opinions, it might not be what you're after. Um, I throw SAS at it. Um, and then I enjoy some of the JavaScript features, for example, um, making sure my copyright year is always up to date in my footer, right? Always useful. <laughs> that automatically, you know, builds at build time. So as long as the build builds within the new year, that's always going to be up to date. <laughs> Um, you know, but then more advanced features too, like um, you can create collections. So create collections of content. So like if you have news or your blog posts, then you can use like a Nunjux or something to loop through those. Um, so you have some of these nice templating features. Again, just out of the box, you don't have to install anything extra. Um, and it's extremely, extremely fast. So, and you also don't, I think there's only like one circumstance I've encountered where I had to like restart it um, from a change. But as you add content, it just automatically gets built. Um, and so it's a very fast workflow. I call it my enabler. I use it for all of my sites now. And um, they don't have the concept of themes, but they do have starters. So if you are interested in checking it out, you can pick out a starter um, if you would like to begin having um, a little more opinionated architecture provided to you. If you're used to a certain framework or something, you can you know, certainly find a starter for that. Um, I've even used one that also augmented the build process with parcels. So if you do need more full feature JavaScript, definitely you can you can make that work. So it is extremely moldable. That's what I like about it. That's <laughs> the best kind of framework, right? It gives you the 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 framework to to actually do what you need to do. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah.
And 11D Rocks itself um, looks like it's billed as a collection of starters and plugins and resources. Uh, where did that project get started? Did that come before modern CSS or is that something that you started after? It came after. So currently it's only my own content. Um, I, I've been trying to, I essentially haven't had time to figure out how to do a contribution model. So it's all my own content right now. And that's basically why it exists is I was kind of having enough stuff that I was, you know, it's all on GitHub, but I was sharing it one off in tweets and I wanted a place to actually point people to. Um, so yeah, so I have like, um, educational resources, starters, plugins, um, and then templates of stuff that I, the other reason I like 11D is it's not necessarily for static site generators or static site output. I used it to build a web component generator or an email generator or a CSS Houdini oh, wow. generator. So essentially- So it's more of just a pipeline. Yeah, yeah, it really okay. is. <laughs> So um, I love that flexibility of it too. And Twitch scenes as well. <laughs> I used it for that. Um, That's so interesting. Anyway, it's, it's trying to show the breadth of what the what is available. And also, you know, there's a quick tip section and a few, a few tutorials. That's the part that um, I'm trying to update every once in a while. I'll do more tutorials on it as well. But yeah. Cool. Well, I think everyone should go and check it out. That's 110.rocks, uh, which is an excellent URL. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> cool. Uh, we are just about at the end of our show. I just had one last question for you, Stephanie. Yeah. Uh, I heard a rumor that you decorate cakes. <laughs> uh, is, is this correct, first off? It is correct. Twice a year. <laughs> one for each daughter. <laughs> nice. Uh, how how is that? What 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 brought you into this? I think I saw something on Twitter about Elsa and a mermaid at one point. <laughs> yes, yes, that was just. Uh, I know this will air later, but yeah, that was just this week. Uh, this yesterday was my daughter, my second daughter's fourth birthday, so it was a unicorn mermaid princess birthday. Because what else would a four year old want? Um, of course, <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> My five-year-old would be all on board with that. Yeah. So um, I wore out a VHS tape of Betty Crocker cake decorating when I was a kid. And I've sort of carried that through. Um, I watch cake videos a lot, but I don't. I just do it twice a year because it takes so much time and effort. But it's fun. It's a fun offline creative activity. <laughs> and I don't do enough offline creative activities. So it's a <laughs> good little brain break, too. <laughs> That sounds like fun. Do you do you post up the finished creations anywhere? Not not other than you know the one off Twitter or okay. like, you know to family. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. No, that's really cool. Uh, I'm always impressed with talents like that. Like I can understand computer stuff, and it's also impressive. But I I can understand it. I the I don't know if it's the motor skills or just the creative mind behind bringing to life a cake. That's that's really impressive. So that's really cool. Oh, thanks. <laughs> well, awesome. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about before we finish? I think we covered covered most of them. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, great. Thank you, Stephanie, for coming on the show today. Thank you. Uh, that was great where can you. where can people find you if they want to keep learning about you, keep talking with you online? Yeah, Twitter is definitely the main place. Um, uh, my 
handle username what do the kids call it i don't know is 5t3ph so that's a legacy again from being an old um and i have that on most platforms like github and codepin as well um so that's the main place to reach out to me um off of modern css you can also get to my newsletter sign up if you want to know what else i'm up to i guess um i also have started doing twitch streaming and i try to include that schedule because it changes week to week in the newsletter so covering all sorts of content topics there great thank you and I hope you all enjoyed this episode as well. As always, the conversation does not stop here. Uh, as Stephanie noted, that's where you can find her. It was 5T3PH on Twitter. Um, and you can also find me online at Lindsay K. Wardell. That's L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-K-W-A-R-D-E-L-L. As for the podcast, you can find us online at modern.web.com. That's modern, D-O-T web.com or on Twitter at modern.web, M-O-D-E-R-N-D-O-T-W-E-B. As always, thanks as well to our sponsor, Dexecure. Hope you enjoyed this show. We'll see you next time. podcast is sponsored by this.labs, a framework agnostic consultancy that specializes in JavaScript. You can find them at this.co slash labs. That's T-H-I-S D-O-T dot C-O slash labs. Come on, let's go, cause we got a show for you.